Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Jenny Lefcourt on the show today. Jenny is a partner in Jenny and Francois, wine importer based in New York, working with natural wines from around the world. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Levy. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about you. You went to Cornell. I did. I went to Cornell, and um, junior year, I went off to France, and that was my first, um, I'd say my first huge encounter and huge falling in love with wine and food. What were some of the key experiences when you got over there? Well, uh, I grew up in New York City. My parents were not foodies at all. Um, Not much wine in the house. And when I went to Cornell, I, I was studying comparative literature and very much involved in the French department. And there was a lot of food and wine <laughs> already <laughs> before I took off. And so to try to choose wines to go to professors' houses at Cornell, the professors are very open to having their good students over for dinner. And so that was sort of the beginning of how do I do this and um, enjoying it, enjoying the food and wine. Um, so when I got to France and saw that people take long lunches with a glass of wine or a bottle of wine, um, very long dinners, longer than I was used to having. Um, I fell in love. I never wanted to leave. And I didn't for 15 years. <laughs> so how did you employ yourself while you were living in France? So uh, after college, um, I went back to France to do a master's degree in literature. Um, I studied, I was very interested in the French theorists, uh, Derrida, sure. Alain Sixou, and I went back to France and I studied with Alain Sixou to do a master's degree. Oh, wow. She's a wonderful philosopher, playwright. Um, so I got to see a lot of theater and went to a lot of wonderful seminars, and I thought I was going to be a university professor. Um, but food and wine were always a huge part of my life there. And... Um, When I finished my master's, I applied to grad school in the U.S., and I went to Harvard for for graduate studies. Uh, I was in the French department at Harvard. While I was there, I figured out every possible way to get back to Paris. 
So I applied for lots of grants and I got good at grant writing um, with the motivation to get back to France and eat and drink some more and learn more about wine and food and French culture. So I, um, I spent pretty much most of my time at Harvard. I was living in France um, doing research in the libraries and after the library going to wine bars and restaurants and discovering the wine scene and starting to visit vineyards and go to tastings just for fun. Did you, like, send off the grant proposal, like, what does Sartre really mean when he says that the waiter has a false consciousness in the cafe? I want to explore more. That's I want exactly. to go and eat in cafes and understand what he means. The fiction of wine. Right. Yeah, well, Bart did that thing yes. about wine, right? Yeah. Which I didn't really understand because I don't understand Bart. But, but like, he, he did that thing about how wine is seen in French culture, right? Exactly. Yeah. Are there other kind of key pieces that kind of came out of the interaction of the two or no uh, it, that that's one of the main ones yeah really yeah because i feel like a lot of times the intellectual set uh kind of looked down on the wine side did you ever encounter that sometimes they, it was almost like uh too easy or something what I do you know. mean you don't want to actually like... one of my my professor from harvard tom conley mm-hmm. i think i think they're all jealous of the fact that i went and became a wine importer oh yeah actually. <laughs> They're like, oh, I've got tenure, but you've got wine. Right, they're toiling in the library, and I get to go taste wine in France (laughs) and other places now. But um, no, I mean, I think it's such a huge part of life in France that anyone who cares about French culture, literature, cinema, most people I've met care about wine too. So it's, it's sort of, you know, the U.S., were young in terms of wine culture. Mm-hmm. And how do those differences play out? What's a what's that mean in every day? I think that you know, wine is part of everyday life for workers, for kind of every socioeconomic class in in France and it's just part of daily life and um here, you know, it's it's more um People who drink wine or, or study wine and become knowledgeable about wine. And in a way, in restaurants, there's people like you who are just incredibly knowledgeable. Tall. Very tall. Yeah. <laughs> tall to enough. reach the bottles tall that are enough. in the right. higher parts of the cellar. But uh, I, I almost think there's a more sophisticated wine culture in a way, in New York at least. Um, but there's a more everyday wine culture in, in in Europe. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so maybe we're looking for the greatest hits and they're looking for music you can you can dance to. Exactly. And that's something I've always thought was important. I mean, I I'm not interested in selling only expensive wines that nobody can have access to. I think um part of what we do has always been also to seek out accessible wines in, in terms of how much they cost, um, bring really good wines that are accessible here. Um, like we do, uh, we invented a brand called From the Tank, and we do a, a box wine, um, which now we also do in kegs. And that's part of us, I think Francois is of the same mindset, that, you know, great wine should be for everyone. Well, I remember uh, many years ago, um there was a, a return to Renaissance terroir tasting that Jolie had set up in New York. And I went, and I don't 
No. Did you have Baral for a while? I don't know. No. But you were but next to the Baral table. <laughs> and I, I, we met, and I just found you uh, fascinatingly engaging. Hmm. We didn't have a business relationship at the time. But um, you were just willing to talk to people in a way that was very real. <laughs> and then I always wondered what happened to you. Huh. And then many years later, <laughs> uh, because you had the wine import company at the time, but uh, we just didn't do any business. It was a different wine market, mm-hmm. uh, at least for me and my perspective. I I was less, uh, wasn't selling a lot of natural wine at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody even referred to it that way. Probably not. And yeah, no, um, they didn't. <laughs> but then things came back around. But I always wondered about you because you mm-hmm. seemed like uh, genuine oh, at the time. You. And you still do. Um, well, I guess maybe it's the teacher part of me. I always feel like educating about wine and talking about what I know, which is not a lot, but um, communicating what I do know to everyone is something I enjoy. So who are some of the first growers that you worked with when you were setting up the portfolio in 2000? 2000. Um, Francois, a few years before, had gone to wine school in Beaune in Burgundy. And he did apprenticeships all over France. He worked for Thierry Almond and Cornas on those incredible slopes that I couldn't even walk on. I don't know how anyone works there. He worked um, in Thierry Puzla's vineyard. And he worked, really traveled all over and worked in the vines. And that's really how we got, a, got started is he just sort of plunged in to the viticulture side of things and got to know wine that way, which... It's really, um, you know, hands-on. He's done everything from pruning to spraying, tractor work, and now he has his own vines, in fact. But um, so our first connections came through through his um, explorations of how to make wine. And how did you end up meeting Francois? Uh, Francois and I met at a cafe in Paris mm-hmm. before we even went into wine. He's my ex-husband, in fact. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) But but that's long, long ago history. And um, we started going to tastings together, started traveling. But I'd say before that, in Paris years ago, this is the late 90s, there was, there were certain bistros and restaurants that had incredible wines and we wanted to figure out what made those wines different. At the time, there was no talk of natural wine. That's sort of a more recent term, I think. But there were places like Les Envierges that doesn't exist anymore. Francois Morel, who uh, writes for the Rouge et Le Blanc, now was a partner in that restaurant. Le Baratin at the time, Chez Astier. Um, there were Passavant, which also has disappeared. But these places were... Um, all natural wine lists, but without calling them all natural wine lists. But when we went to these places and drank the wines and also to a few friends' houses where we also discovered similar wines, we thought, okay, these are amazingly interesting. They're not too expensive. They're just delicious. They're just, and the French always talk, talk about digestibility. You know, they're not wines that make you feel... Uh, heavy, <laughs> I'd say. They make you feel good. They are complex and interesting, very uh, open, aromatic 
palettes. Um, so we thought, what, what makes these wines different? And so we started to go to wine tastings and talk to winemakers. And what we realized was every one of those wines that we loved, the people were working with the same philosophy. That is, they were working organically in the vines, and they were working with as little intervention as possible in the cellar, most importantly, with native yeasts. And when we realized the kind of connection between all the wines we most appreciated, we were shocked. You know, we were sort of just doing it for fun, but, but realizing that connection was, was interesting. And, um, you know, nobody, it was more, you know, these are more than organic. They're not just organic. They're made with indigenous yeast. Um, Francois always says, don't talk about sulfites because that's sort of a minor issue, I think, compared to the yeast issue. And so we started to travel and really taste the wines with the winemakers and ask them how they worked in the cellar, you know saw how they worked in the vines, went and did harvest. And um, it was just a really interesting experience before we even thought of starting a company. It was just uh, an interest. I was going to be a professor. So that was for fun. <laughs> and then um, one day we put some samples in our bag. At the time, you could bring wine over in the airplane, which you can't do anymore unless it's in your bag under the airplane. And we came to New York and we had a kind of unlikely meeting with Josh Wesson, who it's funny because I don't think he thinks of terroir as something that's a marketable idea, but he tasted the wines that we brought over and he loved them. And he said, well, if you, if you do get started, I'll carry these in my store. Which was bestsellers. Bestsellers, which was just getting started at the time. Yeah, it was opening his first bestsellers on the Upper East Side. So that was that. Was that. And we, we had no experience in the wine business. We had no experience in the restaurant business. Uh, we just had a lot of experience traveling, traveling around the vineyards. And Francois had tons of experience working in the vineyards. And originally, how many people did you bring in? How many growers were in the portfolio? Yeah, probably 10. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but in the beginning, we had no financing. We put the wine samples in our in our bag and lugged them onto the plane. Sometimes we had sixty bottles <laughs> in the plane with us. No way. <laughs> it was, we're trying to hide the fact that it was a really heavy bag, <laughs> and um, we would come over and we mostly we basically sold only to retail, which is probably why we didn't do any business for a while. Um, but we sold to retail uh, DI offers, um, and then we would ship the wines, and then we would get paid for the wines, and then we would buy some new, more wine. So it took us a really long time to get started truly with wine in a storage facility here in New York um, because of lack of financing. And here we are 12, 12 years later, and... Oh, it's a very different story. <laughs> so what is the story today? How many growers are in a portfolio today? Uh, I'd have to look. I think about 40. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And we've expanded outside of France, although mm -hmm. both Francois and myself, you know, that's our big love and our big 
comfort zone um having you know i lived lived in france for over 10 years so but that's also where the what you might call the natural wine scene is biggest exactly exactly so um so we're we're growing and expanding but yeah the definitely the french natural wine scene is is our starting point how have you seen that scene change in say the last eight years what's happened well I think there's been an absolute explosion of interest. Not only are there other importers, distributors working with these types of wines. I mean, there obviously we had some predecessors, but now there's some young people doing interesting things. But also just the general interest. When we came to New York with our samples and started talking about yeast yeast (laughs) in 2000, 2001, 2002, Nobody cared, um, and that really wasn't an issue. It was too technical at the time. Now, it's not at all. Everyone knows how wine is made. I think there's been huge progress in terms of buyers, and they're they're very savvy in terms of how people work in the vines. They've been to vineyards. It was a it was a different world when we were getting started. And I think it was also a very masculine world. Um, most of the buyers I remember our first bunch of years were men. And for me in France, most of the producers were men and most of the people tasting and sellers were men. Um, I'll never forget the first time we went to see Jacques Lassagne in his vineyard. He had invited a bunch of clients from internationally and nationally. Um, I was the only woman, and there were 25 people in the cellar at once. <laughs> and, I just, it's, and that's not unusual. Still there, I think New York, things have radically, radically changed. I would say maybe there's more women wine buyers these days than men. But um, it's a totally different world. Do you think it's an easy way to stand out in a way? Um, perhaps, but... Um, but it wasn't easy for me, I'd say, yeah. to be, you know, in the cold cellar for hours and hours, even just physically. <laughs> it's it's rather grueling. And and I think there's a kind of macho, how long can you stay in February in, <laughs> without going up to warm up your feet? <laughs> is that what the deep thing is about? Like how it's always uh, super cold? Sort of. I I just, I, I find it grueling. I really find it physically grueling to taste 300 wines in the cold and then not sort of be invited somewhere warm. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe after you do this for 25 years, they'll be like, okay, now you can come to the warm room. I also happen not to be an alcoholic. So when everyone (laughs) starts to drink and, you know, warm up that way, you know, it doesn't help me out. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Is it, um, is it possible to be cosmopolitan about wine, to understand wine, to work with it every day, but not let it, become everything in your life i mean you have a family you have things that aren't wine you still read uh literature i mean one of the things that's notable about you is that that's not everything it's a part of the thing does that does that bring some perspective for you i think it does but i think um you know there's also two of us so francois spends tons of time on the road and he's doing most of the what for me is is too physically grueling, you know. I run I run things over here. Um, now that I have a 
a baby, it's going to be harder to travel. I'm still going to, still figuring out how that's going to work. But um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's something that's necessary to be able to go and taste constantly. Um, but, um, but yeah, there's two of us for that. So say that you uh, were giving advice to a younger woman who wanted to get involved in the wine trade. What are some of the things that you would say to her uh, just to ground her into realities and how to be prepared for them? Um, I would say don't forget to do what you need for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. on, on the road, it's you get you can get carried away with tasting all day and then having a wonderful dinner with a wonderful winemaker and staying over th- their house. Um, I think sometimes I would need to like retire to a hotel and rest, <laughs> which I don't always do, but people are so wonderful and so welcoming. Um, but it's, it is rather, uh, it's, it's work. You know, people say, Oh, you're so lucky you get to go taste wine in France, but it's, um, it's very hard work. I think for me at least. How has the scene changed on the New York side? On the New York side, you know, I, there's so many boutique wine shops that have opened over the years. There's so many kind of farm-to-table philosophy-type restaurants that have opened. And even sort of the bigger-named restaurants that have been around for a long time have are more open to the types of wines that we love and that we bring in. So... I would say things have gotten much, much easier. There's a level of knowledge, as I said before, that makes it much easier. We don't have to explain everything from scratch. Um, sort of the part of the education is taken on by by each buyer, and so it's it's um, the reception is is easier, is more positive. Although. I, I do remember the first time we came to New York with our bag of wines. You know, we went and saw some of the big retail shops that had been there for a long time and had a meeting with Peter Morell. And we came in with 25 wines, and he said, I'll taste two of them. And then he ended up tasting all 25, calling his sister Roberta into the room, and they gave us an order for a few pallets on the spot. And then we would go to Garnett, and David Lilly at the time was buying for the Loire at Garnett. And we, same thing, we would sit and after a while the tone changed and they bottled they were one of our biggest uh supporters in the beginning at Garnett JR and and David Lilly so we did get great reception from the real true wine people did years it ago take hold more in the retail side in terms of natural wines than originally restaurants was for, for us it did but i'm not sure if that's because of the financial aspect of not not being able to stock wine in the beginning, or if it, or if it was indeed that retailers are, were more open, not really sure which which <laughs> which it is. Um, but now certainly we have great customers on both sides. And you recently, uh, in the last couple of years, have picked up wines from this country. Uh, you had Couturi and Dirty and Rowdy recently came into the portfolio. What's it like to see the homegrown scene kind of develop in that way? It's incredibly interesting to me that, well, Tony Couturi, for example, I think he really thought of himself as 
alone mm-hmm. producing natural wines in California. I think he felt very isolated over the years. And even in terms of his distributors in New York and elsewhere, working with companies that didn't necessarily understand natural wines or support them the way he wanted to be supported. And when we had French producers in town, I'd always open a bottle of Tony Cotori for them to say, hey, you know, look at this. There are There's a natural winemaker in California. There's certainly others. Um, and so when I heard he was looking for a new distributor, I hadn't thought of branching out to this side of the Atlantic, but um, but it just seemed like a, a good match. And he was, I think, really excited about it too. So, but it's interesting. The There seemed to be all over the world in Italy and California, um, more and more people making natural wines, experimenting. About the conversation, you know, outside of the winery, has it sometimes gotten a little heated when the subject comes up? Not necessarily from you, but have you witnessed times where uh, tempers have, have raised over the, the subject of natural wine? Um, surely. I mean, you know, it seems like there's an ongoing, unending uh, debate full of all kinds of energies, especially on the blogosphere. <laughs> um and it's interesting how people get so riled up about about wine, about taste, about how things are made. For me, and I know this is not true of a lot of the producers and even a lot of sommeliers or people drinking the wine, for me, there's a political aspect that's incredibly important, which is part of why I do what I do. Um, because, well, I grew up in a very lefty political family. My mother was a do-good civil rights lawyer. And when I went to France and I heard people like Olivier Cousin talking about what he does and, you know, fighting against genetically modified plantations near his vineyard and really defending diversity. Um, Now he's in a huge fight with uh, the Anterre-Loire folks um, because they don't want him to call his wine AOC Anjou, when for me, he is absolutely representative of what Anjou should be. So there's there's a fight going on. You know, AOC, the appellation system is about a norm. It's a normative system. It's saying there, you know, all of these wines resemble each other and they're about this place. The problem is what the majority are doing are machine harvesting, are using lots of chemicals, or overcropping, and they're making, and they're using lab yeast and all kinds of other additives. And so for me, most of the wines in most appellations don't represent the appellation. And ironically, the people who are actually working to express the terroir, who are not using chemicals in the earth, who are using yeasts that are naturally present in their terroir, those people are being thrown out of the system. So that's very backwards. Luckily, there seems to be an international market that doesn't really care, but it's sad, I think, for the French Appalachian system 
that things are so backwards. Um, are we going to see a system develop like we, or anti-system develop like we saw in Italy, where people are going to abandon the designated Appalachian hierarchy because they can't feel like they can make the wines that they wanted to make in it? That's exactly what's happening. I have half of our producers have abandoned ship. They're making table wine, um, which are the wines of excellence of their appellation, but they're not allowed to use the AOC name anymore. And they've decided to, a lot of them have decided to stop asking for it. Olivier Cousin has abandoned ship. Um, Marc Pinot in Muscadet um, has decided it's not worth it. So it's it's too bad because it puts restrictions on, on what they can put on their labels but they have enough buyers in the world who understand what they're doing that it it doesn't really affect their livelihood. So are we going to see super Loire wines coming out <laughs> of uh, the natural wine producers in, in the Loire, or what's going to happen next? I don't know if the system's going to bend or change. Uh, there was a wonderful person um, fighting for that a few years ago, but things have seemed to have slid backwards again, so... I think they're just going to, they're functioning outside of the system. And w- but what's wild, you know, the Dive Boute is a natural wine tasting that happens every year in the Loire. Uh, when we first went, I think 10, 12 years ago, it was a little room with 15 growers, maybe 50 people. Now there's hundreds of growers and thousands of people who go to this thing. And at the same time, the same week, there's the... Salon de Vin de Loire, the big Loire Valley tasting. And this past year, it seemed like there were this huge convention hall was incredibly empty and the Dive Boutet was incredibly full. So I think it's backfiring for for the AOC system. It's not working out. <laughs> Is it kind of like what happened with the Impressionist artists in France where they took a different view of nature and they were rejected from the official salons and they came up with their own and that became quite popular several years in a row? That's an excellent analogy. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly it. The, the off salon becomes the big one and the in the, the official one becomes the empty one. So someone who may not have uh, a clear idea of the difference outside of the idea of native yeast uh, between what you might think of as a natural wine and a conventional wine, if they were to go and say at the retail store, hey, I want a natural wine, and they would take it back to their home, what might they expect to find when they open that bottle? What is What are some of the, the generalities of the taste? I always like to talk about Beaujolais Nouveau as the sort of most obvious example. Um, Beaujolais Nouveau went so overboard in using this one yeast that became identifiable, like artificial banana taste, like the banana candies. And that is the tape because that same yeast was used to make most Beaujolais Nouveau, people associate that taste with gamay. Gamay is one of my favorite grapes, and it can be incredibly varied depending on the soil, depending on how it's grown, depending on yields, and depending on yeast. But if you taste Emmanuel Guillaubru in Macon, who makes beautiful Gamay that's incredibly mineral, 
and then you taste Olivier Cousin in Anjou, and he, he makes a very rustic, uh, incredibly dark gamay. And then you taste Domaine des Sablonnettes, who's also in Anjou, who makes a, a lighter, um, also with a mineral background, but just very pretty, nice acid, nice, nice mouthfeel, nice balance. And you compare all three, if you sit down with a commercially made Beaujolais Nouveau and those three gamets as different examples of gamay, or a Morgon from Marcel Lapierre, uh, even five different Morgons from Marcel Lapierre, <laughs> the differences are absolutely astounding. And I think that's a good way of kind of understanding what this is all about. I have nothing against somebody liking a Beaujolais Nouveau that tastes like bananas. It can be pleasant sometimes. Um, for me, what I look for in a wine is something more complex. I like acid. I like mineral. I like something that is expressing a place, is expressing the terroir where, where the wine is from. And you know, on a hot summer day or at the end of a rich meal, Gamay is just what I, what I want to drink. So um, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> is there sometimes variability and surprise with this category more so than other categories or other styles of winemaking? Well, in the sense that if you are always looking to have that banana taste when you drink Beaujolais Nouveau and you know, it's sort of like a product, like Coca-Cola. You know what you're going to get each time you open it. It's the same. Then you will be disappointed, perhaps, or surprised at least. But if you're looking to be surprised, if you're looking for something different, um, if you like discovering different interesting foods, and then you'll probably like discovering interesting different wines. And... So it de I think it depends on what your what your expect the expectation is going to be. If if that kind of surprise and and opening the wine and tasting it before you take your first bite of your appetizer and then continuing it during the meal and tasting it again at the end or maybe asking for the wine to be decanted if it seems a little closed up or um, you know if that's the pleasure of eating and drinking for you then these. I think, are the wines that give the most pleasure, at least for me. They, they always have since I went to France for the first time and started to really enjoy food and wine. Are wines that are accessible to drink um, basically around the time that they're released, is that something that's important to you when you put together the portfolio? Is, is an entree into the the wine flavors at a fairly young age, something that you look for? I think the way these wines are made leads to wines that are drinkable young. That doesn't mean they're not better five, ten years from now, but they're also drinkable young because they're not heavily extracted. Now, if you go to Kaur and you have a Malbec or Co, as they call it there, that is incredibly dark and inky and tannic really it's there's not much pleasure in it until 15 years down the line but if you go to Kaur and drink a, a lighter style 
wine that's not so extracted like Closiguier. It is delicious young, and it's also delicious down the line because it's well-balanced and it has pretty acidity, so it can hold up over time. But that doesn't mean that young, it won't also be pleasurable. Um, so, so I definitely think these wines are, are often good young, and depending on the wine, obviously, and the vintage and the acidity level and the balance, um, they may be absolutely excellent put away for for a while when people talk about the natural wine movement is it a movement or is it more like a fraternity or because uh is there a lot of structure or is there structure at all or how does it actually play out in reality i think it depends the on the winemaker there's there are winemakers who are doing their thing alone in their appellation in their corner of france um for a long time i think mark pinot for example in the Loire um, was sort of isolated doing, you know, he had tasted Marcel Lapierre in Paris. His, his brother is a rather well-known sommelier. Um, and then he went back to his vineyard and decided to make natural wines, but he didn't really know anyone. And then he met more and more people. And he met people when he came to New York with us, um, other wi- winemakers, and he met other winemakers in the Muscadet region. And started talking and exchanging notes and exchanging uh, ideas about how to spray less and all sorts of things. His wines are getting better and better every year and more precise every year. So somebody like that started out isolated and is now, I guess, more part of a group. Um, There's certainly different clans in the natural wine world. There's the more biodynamic group attached to Nicolas Jolie. There's the natural wine group uh, who was more attached to Marcel Lapierre. And who, who died. It's who, not like they who, reputed who died. him. He yeah. just, he's passed away. Um, but there's then sort of others, plenty of other subgroups and plenty of people who don't know these folks and maybe aren't necessarily included in, in a tasting like the Dive Boutet. Although there's, um, they did a wonderful thing for many years, um, bringing in young young winemakers, partnering up with young winemakers to not always have the same people present. But um, yeah, there's certainly groups. Um, but then there's also so many. You know, France is a big country, so then there's you know, more of a group in the in the south, and there's a group in the southwest. There's a lot of interesting things going on in the Southwest. Let's hear about it. What's happening down there? Um, well, we've we've uh, worked with the Plagel family for a very long time. Sure, in Gaillac. In Gaillac. Um, they're probably the best-known producers in, sure. in the Southwest. One of my favorites. <laughs> um, but Robert Plagel um, went and replanted a lot of indigenous varietals in the vineyard that had all but disappeared or were disappearing. Prunelard, Duras, um, Luan de l'Oeil. <clears throat> and they make, make wines from these indigenous varietals. And his son took over, and now his grandson is taking over or participating. And um, so that, that sort of philosophy, attitude, wanting to return to tradition and save varietals that are disappearing uh, is important to a lot of natural winemakers, I think. And 
there's a lot of young people moving into the Southwest because the vines are affordable. Mm -hmm. And there's some wonderful old vines to be had for not much money. So we work with a, a young woman, for example, named Nadia Lousseau, Chateau Olavigne. Her vineyard is 15 minutes south of the city of Bordeaux. So it's not in the Bordeaux de Appalachian. She makes a Cote de Duras, but uh, which no one's ever heard of the, that AOC. But um, it's all the same varietals as Bordeaux, and she makes beautiful Semillon Sauvignon blend for her whites. And um, she has some Merlot and some Cabernet, but um, she's working biodynamically um, all by herself. She's about my my height, very small woman. Um, so as I was saying before, there's more and more also young women winemakers uh, doing their thing. So that's exciting. Do you think we're going to see a time, uh, or have we seen it already, where uh, America becomes more like France and drinks wine just to drink wine, uh, but not making it a special occasion, just because it's a pleasurable activity that can go in as part of a day as opposed to a totemic uh, experience? Sure. I think, you know, since the 70s, there's been a real revolution in, in the wine world and many people drink wine, whereas before it was certainly much more reserved to an elite. Um, the difficulty is that I think what most people drink or are used to are the more commercial wines, the bigger wineries that are really making um, drinks based on grapes, <laughs> but not, it's not really wine. <laughs> like, so, you know, I won't name names, but some of the huge, you know, there's very huge companies dominating, you know, what young people drink. Um, so I'm hoping that more and more young people, and I say young because I think that's when your taste is formed, um, will have access to wines like the ones we're bringing in uh, that are you know, more about place, that are honest, that are fermented grape grapes and that's it, and um, that can introduce people to different tastes. Has the wine world gotten big enough that we can support many different styles of the wine world like or different priorities in the wine world? I think absolutely. I'm... I myself am surprised all the markets we're in across the U.S. You know, I'm a New York snob, so <laughs> I, you know, when I see all the wine we're we're sending to Tennessee, I think it's really exciting. Cool. Well, I wish you the greatest of success in the future, and it was very much a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lovey. Jenny Lefcourt of Jenny and Francois Selections, a importer based in New York, selling nationally to restaurants and retailers and working with natural wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website all drink to that pod.com that's i l l drink to that pod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating 
You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.